Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. Today Luke and I are joined by Leanne Hall. Leanne is a Melbourne-based author of novels for young adults including the text prize-winning This Is Shyness and the sequel Queen of the Night, and Iris and the Tiger, her first work for younger readers. Leanne has had short stories published in Mianjin, The Age, Best Australian Stories, and the anthology Growing Up Asian in Australia. Her work is most often described as magic realism. On today's podcast, we chat about documentaries, and in the media section, we talk about The Hundred, Rome, Plebs, and The Magicians. For the topic today, we chat about relatability and the growing trend and push for relatability and representation in writing. As always, if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at the address mailbox at thepenofjoel.com. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. My name is Jill Martin, and we are at the Brunswick Street Bookstore today. Luke, how have you been? Not too bad. Overloading on information as usual. Overloading. It's just me. In a what good it, way. What was it last time? Was it was it films last time or books last time? I think it was films last time. It was films last time. Yeah. So now now I'm going to documentaries instead. So it's all historical yes, documentaries. Yes, but you've been spamming my inbox with recommendations. I have. I've been sending you all the different links to all the yes. great podcasts and, and documentaries and stuff. Uh-huh. So yeah, all these historical documentaries and stuff. It's now, actually fantastic to get back into history. So talking about history, <laughs> uh, on the last podcast, I asked a task of you. Do you remember what it was? Nope. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> see, I didn't remind you this week because I wanted to see if you'd remember. You've been caught out. This Uh-oh. was my plan. You were meant to read us a very quick Norse tale. Oh, that's right. But you, you, you forgot. But I forgot. We'll save it, not <laughs> next time because you're ditching us next time, but the next time after the next time you can read us. That's funny. There was like somewhere in the middle of the podcast, just a random... Hey, I'll ask Ian to do it for some reason. I'll be like, Ian, find me a a nice tale, read it. And he'll be like, why? But there you go, you failed. That's right. Oh, because we were talking about um, Vikings, yeah. Vikings, where they had like a tiny little snippet of a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. There you go. Hmm. But documentaries. Yeah, Any ones in particular that... You well, found interesting. Or you I want to keep that for the a video? really good documentarist, if that's a word, mm-hmm. um, is Bethany Hughes. She has a couple of good um, series on ancient world and um, and Roman times, uh, Roman uh, strategies and conquests. Um, I've, I mean, as I said, I've I've overloaded on documentaries, so I've heard quite a lot of decent ones, quite a lot of average ones. <laughs> I don't remember the the producers or the people in one. Liam Neeson actually oh my narrated a couple of the ones, and he was in the average ones, which oh, was sad. That is sad. It is sad. I mean, he's a good <clears throat> reader, but obviously, you know, the facts were kind of like biased, and it was like, okay, yeah. It's you you know, the interesting thing about getting a famous person to read, uh, <laughs> like, narrate a documentary is. I don't it's know if he was famous at the time. I don't actually know. Liam Neeson's always been famous. The day he was born, he was famous. <laughs> the thing, the thing, the thing that's interesting is that those documentaries often hit the average mark. I find mm. because they've like spent it on well, either the need, visuals we need or the to, you voice. Know, get someone you know famous to yeah. actually get this out because it's not going to get there otherwise. I feel like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, mm. yeah, that's interesting. Um, there was an interesting documentary um, 
that I was listening to and I listened to again because you inspired me uh, was um, The Crusades by uh, Dr. Thomas uh, Asperge, I think is his name. That sounds right. Um, and he's fantastic. It's just a very good piece um, of documentary making. And, you know, he's written a few books as well. So it's it's good. And I, and I revisited it and it was quite enjoyable. That was produced by the BBC. But uh, What made it stand out to you? Um, it's a very complete picture of the crusades it's it's told from a very um fact-based <laughs> uh bias rather than a uh narrative-based bias narrative either for one or side or, or the other side, yeah. <laughs> yes because op- opinion is like you know it it's helpful it's an enjoyable but at the same time it's especially with documentaries it's good mm. to get a nice grounding um and yeah it's it's great it's just very well produced and, and well made so yeah it was enjoyable. Well, that's what you've been up to. Fantastic. Leanne Hall. Hi. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Hi, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And listening to us babble on about documentaries. <laughs> no, I, I love documentaries, so it's great. I always listen out for recommendations. So. There you go. Fantastic. So what? how has your week been? What have you been up to? Uh, my week has been really quiet. I started running a workshop at Writers Victoria on Sunday, which is an all-day thing. Which oh, was nice. great. Yeah, it was about fantasy and magic realism in short stories. So that was oh, cool. wonderful. And I got to meet a great group of people and had lots of really good conversations. So I've had a pretty quiet one since then. It's a bit of a writing week. So just head down, hunched over the laptop, mm, yep, trying yep. to crank out some words. So yeah, pretty quiet week How all around. <laughs> oh, well, I've just recently done this thing where um, somebody at work has gotten me into part of their shared google doc uh-huh. where they Ooh. log all their word yeah, counts yeah, yeah. every week which i've never that's, done before oh, the idea being there's a bit of competition and yeah, yeah, pressure yeah. and right. kind of external pressure mm-hmm. um so i have been logging my word counts recently which is not normally something yeah. i keep track of so you know i'm i'm around about the like three thousand word a week mark at the Good. moment it's which is like, okay yeah mm-hmm. it's okay um the, the the interesting thing with Google Docs is uh, Luke and I worked on Google Docs for our contract work a long time ago, and that was fun. Mostly it was collaborative editing for the most part, but yeah, um, yeah Google Docs. It's interesting. It's it it when you see someone else typing on the same page, there's a weird feeling you get. Oh, that hasn't happened. <laughs> that before, hasn't happened. But that sounds okay. kind of creepy, like it when is, the IT person creepy. takes over your mm-hmm. computer you remotely. And you just see the little like cursor going, going across yeah, the screen, no, adding words. <laughs> very poltergeist. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it. I'm sure it it's will. It's a bit too real. Somebody um, will probably type in ten thousand words, and I'll be like, revise, <laughs> revise three thousand words. Just copy and paste in something. Hope hope they don't read it and just paste a Wikipedia article. You'll never know. <laughs> oh, dear. No, that sounds quite challenging, but um, quite worthwhile. Um, so let's just jump into news. Uh, Luke, what have you got for us? Well, we have the Apollo Bay Writers Festival coming up on the end of July, mm-hmm. and that's in Apollo Bay. Mm-hmm. So 30th of July to the 31st. There's a few interesting speakers. I was actually curious when I looked up the panel. It's 90 or 70 90 or 85 percent female speakers which i didn't actually see coming to the world you know a balance in it especially with today's you know very everybody's equal blah 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 yeah yeah they're a a very regimented (laughs) approach but no it's it's good good. it's good though but um so apollo bay what what's the history for this um Uh, it's actually been around for a little while yeah um but this is gonna be the first one where they have a poetry slam at the end 
Oh, cool. So that's uh, probably going to be exciting. What <laughs> takes place with a poetry slam? Does it is it just a bunch I don't of poets? Actually, know what a poetry slam reading po- There's poetry. There's no up. actual body slamming. I'm pretty oh, sure. I think it's oh, like you just crushed verbal me. That's so sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, just slamming each other around. Just yeah. see these poets with their berets. They're just like you know <laughs> leg into each other with their checkered shirts, <laughs> folded up, rolling up the sleeves. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh my. Um, but yeah, I never understood the idea of a, what, what is a why is it a slam? Is it because they just go poem after poem or what is it? Does anyone know? I don't actually know about why that term. You need yeah. to get a poet in and I grill need, them yeah. about the slam <laughs> yeah, aspect. Yeah, that's right. Well, the next slams. time Dr. Livings is in, uh, oh, we'll, we'll get him. To we'll give him a quiz that, yeah. and be like, all right, give us the download on the slams. <laughs> <laughs> on the slamming. All right, there you go. Anything else, Luke? Oh, no, that no, that's it. it. Fantastic. All right, so TV, media, basically. And as always, let's start off with Luke. Uh, that's not as always, actually, but just <laughs> let's just start back off with to me. you. Well, to accompany all the documentaries and stuff, I was going to continue with Vikings series, but Ooh. I ended up rewatching Rome instead. Ah, good ah, choice. Rome. Good choice. Now, it is, a, it is a fantastic series, and it's done well, cast well, at least the first season was. Um, but I think there's one thing that stands out to me is that the death of Caesar was done poorly which was sad you think so yeah i think it was done quite poorly because he was a warrior he was one of those commanding generals who was so crazy that he would actually fight with his soldiers mm. really really powerful guy and he doesn't actually do anything in this in the history of what happened he did actually fight back until he saw brutus but here he just kind of gets stabbed and dies yeah well it's that's still tragic and it's still a powerful scene well i hate I was to be that history nerd that on you but it, it's not exactly confirmed that he was fighting back during that at the, I mean, you weren't there historians weren't there and he just was got HBO. and and hbo apparently was but i i liked it because it, there was a yeah. certain sadness to that scene him fighting back would make him go down as a tragic warrior hero which i don't think he is seen as um, in that scene, it's because of all the senators around him just, mm. you know, taking shots at him. Spoilers, yes, Caesar does die. I don't think I need to preface this bit in case for people who haven't seen Rome um, or know history. Or read uh, history book. Yeah, but it it's a uh, yeah. I I really like that scene. Actually, I I think it. I'll, I'll go on the other well, side. Well, I still think it's really. a good scene. I know it's a good scene, but I I just feel, feel and like I feel history's for history is substantially murky enough. To let it and also the the following up with Brutus that was also not strongly historical because Brutus was always very very sad about what happened. Yes, he and was. That was that was, yeah, in, he was, he was a tragic hero looks, in one way. But, um, but here he just sort of seems like yeah we did we did fine and then he he sort of calmed down instantly. But that, that's all right. Mm. I mean it was still 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 one of the better shows that I've ever seen. Yeah, it it's a show that even though it does for me anyway suffer a little bit of HBO itis as I call it. <laughs> Um, with the soapiness, it does better, I think, than most HBO shows that it focuses on really intelligent dialogue, good characterization. It was good setting yeah. that they did as well. And so I, I really yeah. enjoyed the the way that they portrayed all these little rituals that the Romans would do and mm. the sort of um, little I household gods and things I and love the graffiti that little, everywhere. Yeah. And little touch with the graffiti was really, really good. Hmm. What did you think, Leanne? 
What do you think of Rome? It's a few years back that mm. I watched it, but I remember really enjoying it yeah. at the time. I'm like not so dedicated to history mm. and mm. and sort of historical research or reading that yeah. I get too hung up when things yeah, are yeah, not yeah. historically accurate. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of accuracy for a good good scene or good a good scene. story. Good shot. So yeah. yeah. I remember I remember quite liking it because there were quite a few strong female characters mm-hmm. in it and a good kind of female focus in the series, which I think at the time was lacking in a few other things I was watching. So mm-hmm. I remember enjoying that aspect of it. Um, but I've also more recently really, um, do you guys watch Plebs at all? No. It's like a, it's a comedy series, a British comedy series um, set in Roman times and it's extremely funny and it's, it might irk you, actually, Luke, because if it's while, comedy, it won't be any. Well, the, you know, the sets and the costumes and everything it's sort of seems top, pretty silly. historically oh, accurate. Okay. But right. some of the like the the way that characters speak or yeah, the yeah, opening yeah. scene and the theme, there's like this reggae theme song, which right. of course okay. isn't quite really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it doesn't gel quite correctly. But uh, look, I just think Flips. it's a really great ensemble comedy. It's a good one with sort of three hopeless young dudes who never win and their personalities are just really set in stone and they never transform themselves or change um (laughs) extremely unlucky in love and kind of poor and down and Mm. out so it's it's a great show it's very funny there you go. Yeah. I've not look, yeah. I've not heard of that. I've never so. even heard the title yeah. hanging around. Oh. So that's interesting. Yeah, and it's, no, it's, it's like we're really, really excited about the latest season is coming out. Is it very new or very old? Or? Um, I think it's in its third season. Oh, wow. um, so it's okay, been around yeah. for a while, but they're very short. It's like six episodes. Yeah, yeah. So, And they're short mm. episodes as well. So you wait a while and then you just watch it all in, in as quickly as possible in one <laughs> yeah. night. And then Binge it's all it. over. Yeah. You have to wait around again. Okay. There you go. We'll check it out. Um, I was watching uh, a young adult TV show because I wanted to cleanse the palate of the Shannara Chronicles uh, from off my mouth and and try and imbibe something that was worth watching. Uh, so the, the interesting thing with uh, the Hundred is that there's a lot of movies literature out there um, with the whole idea of the post-apocalypse and usually within a young adult focus, um, and. F- for a lot of them, for me anyway, they just don't cut the mustard. I just don't feel like it's strong enough as a story. It's it's very, uh, to me anyway, it feels very pandering. This one, however, so I started started the series and I got the Shannara Chronicles vibe. I got the whole like, oh okay, you know, we're hitting the we're hitting the archetypal roles of characters. You know, this is the nerdy one. You know, this is the strong one, and we, you know, this is the violent, crazy one. Um, so the plot the plot basis for this for people who don't know is is really tenuous. But uh, the Earth's destroyed by uh, nuclear war. Um, the survivors are up in what they call the Ark, uh, which is basically uh, the International Space Station's all 12 of them that join together and form this this base. And they have enough oxygen for a few, you know, they've been there for like 80 years or something, I think, 90. Um, and they, you know, they have very strict rules, so you can only have one child and all these sorts of things to keep the oxygen levels low. And, you know, any uh, crime over 18 is um, considered a capital punishment because, well, they need to cull the population. So there's all these really grim, you know, um, vibes going on. But the premise is they send 100 juvenile delinquents to Earth to see if it's safe to, to survive. And it's, it's one of those crazy ideas that you know no bureaucracy on the planet would do something like that. But anyway, 
suspension of disbelief. If you have faith in bureaucracy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you you get down, you get down on, and surprise, surprise, we're not actually spending the whole season in a space station. They <laughs> land on Earth and it, they can survive the radiation. Um, and the first season, I think, is quite bad. Well, at least half of the season is quite bad. It's very, you know, it hits all those markers. You know, every episode is what you'd expect. And then you get to this point where things start going a bit weird, where the story starts to go for the crazy vibes, to go real off kilter and try things that are new, try things that are different with the people on Earth, because there are people on Earth. Um, they're not all mutated crazy people and some of them are, can speak and all this stuff and it starts to get kind of interesting and in season two it gets dare i say it good <laughs> um and that's a huge shock for me because they've got the archetypes out of the way they can play yeah now. it really does feel like and, and they murder some of them they just like all right out you get you know we're, we're getting good writers in it, it really feels to me either the showrunners you know got booted out and you guys came in or they just have said Oh, they, and, you know, we're, well, we're talking to Chelsea uh, Cassio on the last podcast about, you know, the bureaucracy of, of screenwriting. Because this is a huge process and uh, producers have a great impact on what gets released. Mm. So stories can get very generic very quickly with, you know, not really all the writer's control. With this one, however, I feel like there was a big leeway in second season where they're like, let's do something risky, and it's on the CW. That's like a really weird channel to do something strange on. They're very generic for the most part. What's the um, CW? I've got a real soft spot for trashy CW <laughs> oh, teenage yeah, I shows. Do I really do. I do too, yeah. but it's just, you know, to see them go down a weird route yeah. was real strange. Pretty much what you said mirrors. I've got a lot of friends that are obsessed with The 100 and I haven't watched it mm. yet, but they've written me an, a viewing guide that pretty much <laughs> says exactly what you just said. Yeah. The whole of like um, season one, it just says, hang in there, hang in there. It's Get nearly good. good. It's nearly getting good. Then like about halfway, they say it starts to build. Yep. It gets sort of good by the end. Exactly what you said. Then yeah. season two just comes and wallops you. And you're just like, what yeah. is this show? This, yeah. is, this is really interesting to me. Mm. Um, and you know, I'm not the audience, obviously, for a young adult TV show. Well, I, I thought I wasn't. And then the second season just surprised me. This is just a show for everybody, really. Um, and it sounds really cliche to say that, but it does feel like they know what they're doing. Also, take a shot every time one of these kids gets their face cut. Almost every episode. <laughs> just, you'll be blind drunk. Alcohol poisoning at the end if you do what I just said. Because every episode, it's like they just get walloped into the ground. It's like the writers have some sort of masochistic tendency to beat up these perfectly good-looking young people. And then in the next episode, they're just gorgeous again. It's crazy. I don't think that's how injuries work. But um, nevertheless, very funny. <laughs> very funny. Um, and it gets it gets good. So so that's my, that's my rant on my TV show for the week. Anything else? Or are we good to move on? Oh, I've been really enjoying watching The Magicians, but I don't know mm. anyone that is watching it, so I have had no one to discuss it with. So I've watched three episodes. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Have S you read the books? Because I'm See, that's the thing. really into the books. I've never read the books. Yeah, okay. And as a person who's never read the books, so I know nothing about the source yeah. material. Um, a lot of people came up to me and said, oh, you know, it's it's uh, it's like Harry Potter is, is the, the cliche they throw around. Yeah. And I've never read Harry Potter. So I'm, I'm completely... You go in I go in cold turkey with this one. Um, it, I, 
it didn't offend me. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't offensive to me. It, it, you know, I, it just didn't Dude, have anything to keep me going. Yeah. And I watch a l- I watch too much uh, <laughs> of shows, so I, I needed to cut you back. Had to cull. Yeah, yeah, and that was that was the one that got yeah. culled. Uh, I watched yeah three three episodes, and yeah. you know it's an interesting premise, but uh, yeah, uh, maybe it's maybe it's that CD, CD, um, CW the the hundred thing where it gets good halfway, but I feel like yeah. it wasn't going really. It's anywhere. entirely possible that my love of the source material is what's keeping me going with it because you can often okay. if you something is is based on a book that you really love. Mm-hmm. If you're not offended by how skimpily they've done it, then actually your knowledge of the source material enriches the viewing experience enough that it fills in these gaps. Don't you think you'd but hate it more though? I don't know. Bad? I don't know. I'm wondering with this. I this one I just so wanted it to be good that yeah. I think I'm I'm watching it through that lens. So what did you think of the books then? What what made the books different to you? Um I guess I just never read fantasy quite like it. It was mm. really taking the piss out of a lot of fantasy tropes and, mm. you know, the the magical kingdom, there is really Narnia-esque yep. and yep. it's obviously yep. kind of um, taking from Harry Potter as well, but this real adult spin to it. So it's it's kind of fun to see people learning magic at the same time as going through these really quintessential college experiences mm. of sleeping with the wrong people <laughs> and getting really, really pissed yeah. and mm. being miserable and, you know, I just thought it was fun. <laughs> I... I didn't expect it to be that violent. I think I got to uh, the second episode, I think it was. And I was like, man, I didn't see that coming. So yeah. it did, definitely had the shock value um, that I didn't expect out of a you know a college drama with magic in it. But yeah, the, uh, yeah, it just didn't grab me, I think, yeah. with it. But I, I, it, unlike the Shannara Chronicles, it's not one of those shows where it's like, oh, I'll never go back to it or something yeah. like that. <laughs> um, hey, maybe the second season gets better. <laughs> <laughs> is there going to be a second season? I have season? no idea. I, d- I don't, I have no I don't know. They probably lost all their funding. Maybe. At the start. <laughs> um, yeah. So there we go. That's our media section for today. So we move on to the topic. And this one's a biggie. Um, and uh, like we've been talking about this year, it's more focused on, you know, the nitty gritty of the, you know, the writing process and different parts of it um, at all stages of it. And... For this one, we're talking about the idea of relatability, and that is a word that's being used a lot these days, a lot more than it used to. So, to to give an intro to this subject, there was an article uh, in the New Yorker in 2014 by uh, Rebecca Mead, I believe it was, um, and it's quite well known. And she was talking about the word you know, being relatable as well as the the process that, you know, writers now have to measure themselves up to. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of things that she says that I'll basically use as the touchstones of this discussion, chat, argument, yelling at each other. Who knows? Um, I hope we get there. Uh, so there's a, there's a, there's a uh, sentence here in the article where it says, Criti- uh, critic uh, Virginia Hefferman, um, Heffernan called uh, relatable a weird daytime TV word. Um, but this weird word has jumped in usage over the years. So a couple stats for you. Uh, five years ago from the time of the article um, in the Times, writers resorted to the word relatable only on 16 occasions within a 12-month period. By 2013, the reliance on this word had grown. It had appeared in 116 articles that year alone. So... It spiked, and it's getting bigger, and you'll often see in reviews 
and people talking about books, about the idea of relatability. Do you relate to this character? I didn't relate to this character. There was nothing relatable about the situation. There was nothing relatable about anything in, in the book. And, and these are words that, that get used a lot. So I'm here to ask, what do you think about that? What do you think about relatability? What is relatability to you? Let's start with you, Luke. <laughs> uh, I think I read that article as well. Um, I think when it comes to relatability and it becoming such a huge thing, it it looks like me to, like it's a big spike in the ego of everyone who's mm-hmm. trying to read this. Like it has to be something that feels like me. You know, it has to affirm my beliefs in everything that I believe in. It has to um, make my worldview seem right. It has to mm-hmm. do all these things, and that's 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 the unfortunate side of relatability. The positive of relatability is that it helps people to enjoy the writing. And like, if they have like somebody they can relate to in a story, it doesn't have to be the main character. It doesn't have to be all the characters. It doesn't have to be anything like that. But if it's like someone they can relate to, they can kind of put themselves into the story. They can put themselves in that that place, and it helps them to to um, be more involved in the story mm-hmm. and its and the world. So it, it it has its ups and its downs for me. I think it's used too much. Mm-hmm. The word is used too much, and it kind of is as as they were mentioning is it become like a, a go-to word for everyone who's writing something and they want it to be popular mm-hmm. so that's right. that's my feelings on it there you go leanne i actually don't think about re- relatability at all in my own writing mm-hmm. or in that's my good. reading experience <laughs> like it's really mm-hmm. not something that i pay attention to and i mm-hmm. think yep. as a reader i actually would prefer to not relate strongly to the characters in the sense that i love being surprised mm. by a character that, that doesn't think like me and doesn't behave like me mm-hmm. and who in a way i kind of find it hard to justify their thoughts and actions but then the writer somehow really sells it to me their thoughts it convinces me of their thoughts and actions Mm. for me that's a much more interesting experience than reading about somebody that I relate to very strongly (laughs) Mm -hmm. of course you like to have this kind of like when I read my favorite sort of reading is like when you really just get like stabbed in the gut emotionally and to that certain extent you have to be empathizing with the character or at least drawing some kind of relation to your own experiences and emotions but Mm. I actually think I prefer to read about people that are unrelatable. I mean, it's quite a pleasure to read about, you know, really um, evil characters, you know, mm. that that think very differently to you do. So I, you know, I don't really think about it very much at all. And I do hear people mm. discuss it in their reading. I couldn't relate to them. I could relate yeah. to them. For me, I just never really understand why that's something that they're searching for mm. in a book. So did you know, jumping in a, in a conversation with this one, it and for my views on relatability, um, I think we've talked very briefly about this before, but I, you know, like Leanne, I don't think about relatability at all mm. in, when I write something. Um, I don't think if I can relate to a character because I think that a character should stand on his or her own merit and in that way makes sense to the story, not to someone else. Uh, they have to empathize. They have. They don't have to, but they can empathize and they can um, feel any sort of emotion towards a character, and that is fine. I don't think a writer telling you how you should feel is ever a good idea. Ever a good idea. Um, an interesting thing is that there was a. Uh, also, we talked about new adult fiction. I think it's being called these days, where and 
I, I believe the article has been taken down. Oh, I just can't find it. But it was basically the steps to writing a new adult. Enough. Yeah, there was steps to writing a new adult novel. And it was basically this checklist. It was a literal checklist of things you need to do to make a successful new adult book. And probably it is quite true because those, those exist. Uh, make your character as uh, empty as possible. And even though that sounds like a, a criticism, it really isn't because we're talking about the idea that make your character a blank slate so then we can relate to that character in every way possible. In many ways, it has, the genre has become a role-playing game for people to put themselves onto these, these wet canvases and be them in this story and live vicariously through them. Mm. I don't think that's very good. Oh, I hate that idea. I think that's the very antithesis <laughs> yeah. of what I like in writing. And... I think, and I think that is uh, a large problem. I think within the within the industry. So, getting back to the idea of relatability, I think that if a character has a motivation, that should be enough. That should be enough. It, it, and there, are, you know, people always say that you make your characters three dimensional, and that is true. But some characters are intended to be one dimensional. Mm. They're meant to portray a, a particular characteristic and nothing else. Yeah. We don't need to know about his cat that he has next door and he steals it often, you know, to feed it. Um, that can be something you think about that character, but that's something that you don't need to write down. So that's branching off on another topic altogether. But I think e even a um, 3D character doesn't have to be relatable, though. Yeah. Like, um, I think look at some of the characters in Game of Thrones for instance <laughs> it's a very popular example but yeah it's, it was, uh, everyone still follows that but one of the one of the examples I would think of in, in, in a kids book that um, everyone kind of hated until the very last book I'm sure you pick up on this before before I say the name but um, absolutely hated the character throughout so many of the books very last book or second last book second last book I think it was no, it was the last. <laughs> See, now you're losing um, me. I don't. I, I am in talking about Snape. Yeah, I, I okay. Knew Snape um, was gonna, but okay. yeah, I don't think there's anyone who would have said that they weren't sad when he died, even though everybody hated him until that point, and uh -huh. it wasn't relatable. Yeah, people hated him, but he had their interest, and people like mm -hmm. loved hate reading. Yeah, ab about him, and yeah, it was a good. Still, turn. I don't. I don't think people were relating to him. <laughs> Yeah, but that, that's my own. Opinion. Yeah. Hopefully, not, hopefully not too strictly. <laughs> yeah, but perhaps but, I mean maybe it's not just about you personally, the reader mm, relating mm. to them, but it could be about. I can think of some Snape-like characters in contemporary politics, for example. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a matter if you can relate that character to what you see to other oh, people you see in the world. Really, okay. So, you know, you Snape kind of can stand in for every evil politician yeah basically existence. then you're basically saying that a character should be Don't able tell me that. Oh. to <laughs> to be able to be thought of then to be able to be believed that they are believable characters yeah. in many ways you're saying um and i agree with that i think that if you can make their emotions as believable as possible and you would make them internally consistent within well, the story need, they need to be believable yeah yeah and i'm got no problem with that i'd have no problem a character following his own motivations and moralities through a story the the interesting thing and the very um differing opinions on this idea of relatability 
we're all agreeing, which is interesting, <laughs> but it is kind of um, divisive, and, and, and especially within the young adult community, which is something I found. And I think I can forgive it more within young adult fiction when people talk about the idea that we create relatable characters because often people are going through a period of their life where they want to see themselves uh, in work to be able to identify with their struggles and the problems that they're having within their literature. So that's why I think you know, you see these archetypes pop up. Without um, a doubt, I think re- relatability does come into it with young adult fiction, but mm-hmm. it, it's sort of like a secondary effect. Like I know for myself, when I know that I'm writing for a teenage audience, it's not so much that I'm trying to make my characters relatable, but it's that I, I really focus in on my characters. I want to make them as authentic and genuine as possible. And I really want to, because it's young adult fiction, it's my job to present their perceptions and view, views of the world. So I'm trying to look through teenage eyes. Mm-hmm. So anything that's not relevant to being a teenager and is not how I judge a teenager sees the world mm-hmm. has to be discarded mm-hmm. and ignored. And to, to that extent, like a secondary effect of that is perhaps that that character becomes relatable to teenagers. Yeah. But, but it's more about just really being obsessed with representing the teenage perspective mm-hmm. and a teenage, teenage point years, of view. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I guess there's some element of relatability comes into it, but for me it's more about... It's a byproduct. I yeah. just don't want to include anything that is irrelevant to teenagers, something that's yeah. not a concern, not a priority to them, all has to fall by the wayside and, and be filtered out mm-hmm. um, of the story, I think. Luke, where does that come into play with you? Um... I'm trying to fit that into my head now. Which, mm. which part? Which aspect? Which aspect? Well, I suppose the idea that um, what do you look for in a character? Like, and I guess we're talking a lot about characterization here. In many ways, we are relatability is obviously not one of them for you. Mm. You don't think about it. But what do you think, think? Say someone picking up your book and reading it. Do you think they could see themselves in that in that character? Oh, if we're on my books, yeah. Um, I'm sure someone could see themselves in my character. <laughs> um, I yep. think, as you were saying earlier, it's it, it's all about the the characters being themselves. Mm-hmm. You can't really go out and say, "Okay, I'm going to write someone who is like that kid," because he might read it. Yeah, you know, um, not going to write it like that politician because he's going to read. It. He's not. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's it, it's all very well to um, to try and make it relatable to a general audience as well. But again, if you want to make it um, relatable for a general audience. That's that's called marketing. That's mm. not called writing. Yeah. Per, per specifically. Yeah. Per se. So uh, one thing that I found interesting when I was reading through articles about um, relatability was was a comment where um, a mother, I think it was a mixed race mother with a mixed race child, mm-hmm. and she was complaining that there weren't enough of that specific mixture of race. Mm fantasy books for this specific age Mm -hmm. and you think well if you if you go into real depth i don't think there's any with someone a mixed english irish that's my background of my Mm. age either yeah i I know i know it's not the same for everyone but it's you have to have someone who is of that who Mm. has gone through those exact situations who wants to write a fantasy book for that to come out right so when it comes to that specific idea of relatability yep you can't expect it always to be marketed for everyone yeah and this (laughs) and this dovetails really nicely into um something i did want to bring up which is racial 
representation mm-hmm. um, within books that I feel very strongly about, uh, but in the way that, to me, a lot of the conversation is focused, for me anyway, in, in the wrong direction. Mm. I don't think... Um, there's, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on authors today to um, uh, relate, to be able to create characters that are relatable, uh, both in terms of an ethnic sense as well. Mm. Um, we have characters uh, that are, generally speaking now, of a non-white background being f- featured more prominently, and I, I applaud that. But at the same time, I think that cannot, I think, take precedence over everything else. That is a product of the story. If the mm. story demands that that character be there, then that character should be there. Mm-hmm. I think I feel even worse not when a character is represented, but when they are represented for the sake of representation. Instead of because that's where they are. That's right. And, and I think it's, it's, you know, the argument is used that it doesn't matter. The fact that they are being represented is a good thing nonetheless. Hmm. Uh, that they're given that uh, spotlight. But then uh, they're being misrepresented is the issue. And that, that becomes a problem hmm. for me. So, so that's where I fall on this issue. What do you think, Leanne? Well, I think I... Agree. It's pretty kind of offensive when there's just like a cardboard cutout yep. representative character just jammed in a book. You can kind mm-hmm. of see when it's flimsy. And it's often those are the secondary characters, the, the bystanders or the kind of um, the B-list characters yep. in, in the book. It's, you know, often representation isn't of the protagonist. I think what people really want to see is a good diverse representation of, of mm-hmm. the people that are driving the stories. I often mm-hmm. find that that you know people go for diversity just in in sort of friends or sidekicks mm. or it's never you know the main people yeah. in the story i can um, imagine sam the hobbit sam being black yeah it's like if it was filmed that, this year for I could that time that being yeah. the issue and and see this is a thing we often talk about right it's the idea that within western fantasy there's not a lot of non-white characters in it but the principal concern i think is which is the most important is we need to look at the authorial intent yeah. which is to me the main idea and for people to guess as to authorial intent is very arrogant i think um there's a thing with uh, and, and it goes back to the idea of relatability is we are very egocentric people uh, we need to be able to empathize with people that aren't us uh, and we need to be able to see ourselves within people that aren't us that is the key, I think. Um, and I find that is the easiest way to see characters in, say, Lord of the Rings. There are no Indian characters in Lord of the Rings. But the reason why I'm okay with that is it makes sense in terms of what he was trying to do as an author. You mentioned Sam um, within that book. To me, he was, a, he was an author that was writing about a very specific type of mythic structure that he wanted to do and with all the biases and with all the you know personal history that he has with the material and so we should see it as that and Mm. that's what i find the best is when an author stays true to himself or herself but these days i mean if tolkien Mm. was writing these days would we be so forgiving of such a homogenous we would story with a homogenous set of characters i think we'd be like you know where are the gay hobbits yeah 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 <laughs> where are the hobbits of color like yeah you know, i guess it comes from a time and a place where we're forgiving of that yeah and for instance uh this this is something that uh is an interesting topic because say for instance i was to write a fantasy novel today 
um, and I, being of a non-white background, was to write Western fantasy, which is what I generally write anyway. Um, and my characters were predominantly white or black. That is a huge pop, and say they're all straight. Now that is a huge bunch of issues you could say that arise from that. There are no relatable gay characters. Then there are no relatable Asian characters. Um, and we have so many other races that are even less represented within that. But the idea is that, is that right or is that wrong? Where, where do you think you fall on that, Luke? It all has to fit with the story's logic. I mean, again, I can't really be asked this question um, on on the terms of um, equality or anything mm. because I'm I'm quite happy for a story to be um, believable in and of, of itself. But I think the weird thing is that people are like, okay, we have to have a black character, have to have an yep. Asian character, have to have a white character. There's, as you've said, there's so many other peoples out there who are not represented. You mm. don't have a Mexican character, you don't have an Eskimo character, you don't have a... Mm keep going you've got so many different so races out what there what you're saying is if basically, you're going to put in one yeah. character from every single race you'd, you'd probably end up with a huge list of characters who would first of all have to have their own lines mm-hmm. they would have to be at least slightly believable yeah and then you just you'd to be overwhelming be you'd be over- overwhelming yourself yeah. um if if from from myself if i was going to put in someone of a certain race just for the sake of um representation, representation i would have to put all the races in. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I just feel like it's not... It's not pointless. being unfair. It's being unfair. Leanne? I mean, I don't think it's something that's a pressure on an individual writer writing an mm-hmm. in individual title. I think it's more a case of, you know, I always just have in mind perhaps like a young child going into the school library and looking at the mm-hmm. shelves and they can't find a single book that features somebody that has some aspect of their identity that, that this particular child aligns mm-hmm. with. For me, the problem is is kind of like a, a broad industry wide one mm-hmm. and it's not really about single titles unless somebody you know represents something in their book in an offensive way and of certain course, groups yeah, take offense yeah, yeah. to it but it's mm. it's really about what's out there as a whole and it's it's not just what characters are in books it's like uh what sort of writers are getting published mm-hmm. what sorts of yeah. people are working for publishers as editors in marketing, what sort of people are in decision-making mm-hmm. capabilities in the publishing industry? Mm. Um, who are the people in your bookstores? Who are the booksellers and what are their backgrounds um, and ways in which they identify? So for me, it's, it's you know, there is a lot of pressure for writers to sort of think, oh God, I've got to really be really Careful. representative, tick yeah. all the boxes, to write like a United Colours of Benetton <laughs> style <laughs> book, but that's yeah. not really mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interesting um, articles and blog posts recently about saying it's not just about character representation. It's actually about um, a- about authors coming from diverse backgrounds mm-hmm. and situations as well, and that you know people shouldn't necessarily kind of be be um, nudging out writers who can write very authentically from their own experience about um, aligning with a certain identity. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, that yeah. Good, good, good point, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, with that, um, it's, it's interesting as well because, you know, for instance, I wrote a novella which is about a character um, who is, it, it's in a fantasy setting, but he takes a lot of, um, he takes a lot of leafs out of a Arabic culture and he's basically that, that character um, and he's not white, uh, Caucasian. Um, but at the same time, I, I write uh, the Daniel Roth mysteries, which is a very straight-laced Victorian 
basically everybody in that story of of any main importance is white um and i represent uh, a native culture um in a way that a victorian would represent a native culture in a very derogatory way as well um and within that story sense it makes sense the th- the scary thing i think with me is that if i wasn't of a non-white background and i wrote and I wrote the Daniel Roth mysteries, and, it, and um, people were to read it, there is the chance that that could be accused of racism because I'm portraying a non-white um, culture as a primitive culture. So this is where I see this little problem arising. Mm. I can get away with it because I'm not of a white background, so that's fine. I think that's where we need to be really careful. We need to see and try as best as understand authorial intent, and if we can't, to not jump to conclusions and that, that's the thing with relatability as well um I'm, i wrote an article uh, about cultural appropriation which is mm-hmm. a little bit to do with this anyway um and and i was talking about film uh within uh american within you know the large film studios within america not so much the indie scene um and it's interesting because that has a lot to do with this now relatability within cinema i find is a much bigger deal um, people want to see themselves on the screen. So it was interesting when you look at the MPAA, which is uh, Motion Picture Association of America, and they were, I think I got that acronym right, uh, and they they produced their, um, I think, yearly stats on the demographics of people, uh, the genders of people who come in and watch films. And it's really curious because you can see exactly why they cast, who they cast, and the stories they do. Because in the end... They're a money-making organization. Mm. The arts are there, obviously, but it's the large conglomerates. They're there to make money. That's the the primary reason. Um, And you can see that I think it's about 50 or 60% are Caucasian, uh, 12 to 13% are African-American, and about, oh, how many? I forget here. It's like 6 or 7% are Latinos, and then every other race is represented within a the rest of the percentage hmm. um and you look at american you look at american cinema who are the who are the actors you got white you've got african-americans and you've got latinos and they make up the largest percentage of people on the screen because they want to attract to the largest amount of people that they think will want to go watch this movie for relatability purposes i think once people get away from the idea of relating we can actually have people of of different color but i mean it's it's totally absurd to think that you can't relate to somebody because they're from a different background from you you know if the writing's good the acting's good and the director is good you can relate to anyone no matter how different they are from you it's really kind of it's insulting to white audience to say to them that they don't have the imaginative capability Mm. um to relate to a character that comes from a very different background for them like it's totally flawed Mm. logic it sickens me to think of those statistics i mean it's really i cannot believe that it's still like that yeah you know it's 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 outrageous really it and in the end like that that's kind of the problem i find like it's it's bleeding over in 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 literature to a less extent than film definitely but it's those stats i never want to see those stats in literature i don't want to you know go look at the stats of books sold and then have books that are you know color-coded by who you know the largest group of people in a country Mm. that's that's awful and the thing that people then say it's like oh you know you should just issue those values these are 
These are corporations that know where they're money-making institutions. They know how to pump out commercially successful movies. And this is how they do it. I don't want to see, you know, literature to go that way. I think that diversity is incredibly important, but diversity for the sake of it and not for the sake of creativity, I think is is dangerous. Mm. When when it comes to film, let's talk about that for a little bit. Why why do we go and see a movie? Do we see it for the characters? Do we see it for the story? What is it? Look, maybe it's the story. Hmm? It's a little story. I mean, certainly I want to see strong character, but it's not for a white character or a black character. You're of an Irish um, Norwegian background. Yeah. Um, is that what you look for? <laughs> I would like to see one, but I haven't <laughs> seen one yet. So <laughs> not, not really, <laughs> or rather, of any of those, basically. I mean, it, when it comes to history, I like a lot of that kind of thing. But there's a personal connection there, isn't? But there? it's also, I mean, I also watch Rome. I, lo- I love Rome. I love the Roman Roman um, times and the series in Greeks, everything around there. So it's I'm, I'm not Greek. I'm not Roman. Yeah. But um, I suppose you could say I predominantly look at white history, but mm. that's. Mediterranean's not really white per se, but yeah. but yeah, I mean, that's also what I loved as a child is what I was reading. So mm-hmm. it's it's not Norwegian Irish stuff that I'm looking yeah. for predominantly. No, Leanne, what kind of stuff were you imbibing or do enjoy? Uh, when I go to movies, actually, I'm quite influenced by the setting and the place and the mm-hmm. time that a movie is set in. In in the way that I'm maybe yeah, not so. as influenced when I'm picking a book off the shelf. Sure. Um, I really do look to be taken to other places and other worlds when I mm-hmm. watch cinema. So yep. that that's sort of a factor and that's um, also the story is, is a factor as well. But I've got to say I'm really sick of, of being told the same old story. So <laughs> I'm actually sick of man movies. I'm sick of <laughs> movies about the heroic actions of white men. Yeah, yeah. And so I avoid it at all costs. Mm. Of course you can't always avoid it. I, mean, I like a big block, blockbuster movie, so I'll make exceptions. But by and large, like I am sick of seeing the same movie. Mm. And so I naturally gravitate to things that I think a have yeah. more interesting like characters more with more interesting motivations in them. Mm. Yeah, I'm quite keen to go see... Um, a Turkish film called Mustang simply because it's got an ensemble cast of young women I'm like when does that happen yeah yeah like in Hollywood or it's a di- whole other sort of movie if you mm-hmm. make that in Hollywood it becomes a cheerleader movie or something yeah I have, I have nothing against cheerleader movies <laughs> I really like bring it on but you know I, I just I'm so sick of seeing the same stories told by the same people about the same people so I, for a movie I want to go see something a bit different yeah Pretty much. I will be going to see Ghostbusters this weekend, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's kind of the same with me. I um, I don't watch Bollywood, for instance. You know, I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. Traitor. I see enough of that at home. <laughs> but um, it's, yeah, it, to me, I, I love Danish cinema. You know, it's, yeah. it's just, I love that kind of filmmaking. I rant about this. There you go. <laughs> Lucas is just like, he's talking about Danish cinema again. I gotta leave. Yeah, now. I gotta leave. Um, but, yeah, Danish cinema is lovely to me. It's it's that kind of dark European drama that I adore. Um and I love that kind of stuff. Uh but yeah, I I definitely watch a movie um mostly mostly for setting and for doing things that I haven't seen before. It's why I love movies like Ex Machina that does something really strange and mm. takes a concept and you know Turns it up to 11. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I go to a, a cinema and, and want to see different faces. I just want to see different stories, I think is the, the crux for me. Um, 
wrapping up for today, Leanne, do you have any final comments about the subject or anything we talked about? Oh, I feel like there's, you know, we could talk for yeah, 10 hours really about could. this. It's a big, it's a it's big huge. topic. Yeah. Yeah. No, no final comments, I don't think. Fantastic. Luke? All cleared up here. All cleared. I mean, apart from, yeah, the other 10 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And nothing I think... Nothing we couldn't approach without, you know, starting another 10-hour conversation. And I think this... And, you know, we went into the whole race uh, representation thing, which is a massive topic, and we could talk about that as well. And uh, to a certain extent, I wanted to talk about... we talking about, about that across three podcasts? Now, yeah, two, two, we have... So it keeps going. It keeps going. <laughs> and I think it's good, and I, I do it want it to it, keep... Yeah. Uh, to keep going so we'll probably catch up with these topics with another guest um soon because it's it's interesting to see hear different opinions and to see what people think hmm. because in the end ladies and gentlemen that's the thing that counts is to listen to everyone and to respect their views and that is the most important thing um thank you very much for listening to the morning bell podcast uh thank you leanne for coming thank on it's great to have it's you been fun chatting um where can people find you and your work have you got anything coming out for us um, where can people find me? You can find me on Twitter mm-hmm. at Lily Mandarin. I know it's very unprofessional to have a Twitter handle. It's nothing to do with your real name, but there you go. Um, you can find my books in the bookstore. Um, and I'll be appearing at Melbourne Writers Festival as well. I think mainly in the schools program this year, but I'll be out and about at Great. Melbourne Writers Festival. Who knows? We'll be around. We might crash the party sometime. Good. You should. You should. <laughs> um, Luke, what have you got for us? Well, going off the idea you? of unprofessional Twitter handles. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the Soul Shard is the, my Twitter handle. Uh-huh. And it's also my website. So, at the, no, thesoulshard.com. The Soul Shard, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Anything you've got coming for us? Um, that's a good question. Uh, with all the random documentaries and, and stuff I've been listening to... You've been inspired. You, you, sort of. It's a mixture of that and then you look at the YouTube comments and you just go, i got to flame something, but I'm not going to do it online. <laughs> I'm not going to do it online. Yep. So, you got to make an article about YouTube It's got to be the weirdest thing when you listen to a historical documentary and then there's very, very biased comments in the, in oh, the comments. Oh, it's lovely. It's, like, oh. it's great. Oh. It's, it's, just, it's just kind of a mixture of vitriol funny and, sad. and the hatred. And I everything. don't read just, comments on anything. It's really a good do. idea. It's just, it's like when I just sort of pick them up. I'm like, oh. I have a really bad <laughs> finger that just hits the scroll button and I just can't <laughs> help it. And I scroll down. I'm like, I want to get angry. But it's, yeah, I really should stop. Um, you can find The Morning Bell, themorningbell.com.au. We have a ton of podcasts up there in case you want to go through a glut of them. Have fun. It's quite the find. We also do The Discomfort Zone, which is based on movies that we really don't want to see or rather not our kind of thing, but we get forced to watch them and give our comments on them. Um, the last one was on Clerks, and I have no idea about funnies, so it's me trying to make sense of a comedy movie, which never happens. Um, so check that out if you want to have some fun. Also, The Morning Bell, as always, is accepting your submissions. You can check out the submission process. It's always open, and you can have a look. As for myself, you can find me, thepenofjoel.com, and at thepenofjoel on Twitter. Like I said, I have an article about cultural appropriation. Fun times. It's interesting to talk about it. Drop a comment. That's right. Drop a comment. I don't mind whatever it is. He'll scroll through it. Just don't expect me to respond. Who knows? (laughs) Um... Thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you on the next podcast.